Well, good morning, Sedaris. Uh, welcome to church in this uh, live format here. We're so glad that you are with us. And we are especially thankful that you can hear us this morning. You know, we, we were pushing through a lot of audio technical difficulties, but the good news is, is we have Kurt DeVries. And when you have Kurt DeVries, you pretty much have MacGyver on the audio. So we, we, uh, he has a great solution for us. And uh, so, so glad that you can hear us today. Uh, <laughs> so thanks for joining us. Also, a huge thanks to the band. Uh, it's so great that they are committed to leaning into learning and preparing and practicing new music for us to glorify God with, um, that even though a lot of things stop in, in coronavirus, our worship of the Lord in new, exciting avenues and ways and with new words isn't going to stop, you know? And so that's one incredible thing. So thank you to the band for putting all the hard work in to, to bring us a new song today. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead, open it up. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Um, 2 Peter is the second letter that we have preserved for us from the Apostle Peter. And today, we're going to be visiting the conclusion of this letter. If you've been tracking with us for a while, we've been working through uh, 2 Peter. And, uh, and Peter has been unpacking a lot of loaded topics with us. Peter was a rather intense person. And that really is just to say that Peter took seriously uh, serious things. And so uh, there's a version of intensity out there where people take seriously non-serious things like say, I don't know, the Seattle Seahawks. I don't know. But, but there's a version out there where, where, where people take seriously serious things. And that is the Apostle Peter to a T. Um, we've seen him push back against individual and corporate uh, uh, individual and systemic corruption. We've seen him contend that the scriptures are the very word of God. We, we've seen him confront and refute false teaching that was being circulated then. And if all that wasn't enough, he decides to also just throw in uh, what the end of the world is going to look like there. Uh, and so uh, he's brought us through a lot in this, and he's done this in about, oh, 1,500 words or so. And uh, whenever people uh, read the Bible, I always recommend that you read through a book in one sitting if you can, if you try to do it. And with the letters, it's a little bit easier. And when you read through the book of Second Peter, you can kind of feel uh, like all these intense subjects are coming at you and, and you just want to figure out how to respond, but he doesn't really let you. You want to catch a breath, but you just can't. And, and now at the end of the letter, what's great is that he slows down. He's going to pause. He's going to let us catch a breath at several points as he talks through his closing arguments. Because he's going to tell us how we can respond in light of all of these intense, serious subjects that he has been talking about. And, and so... Perhaps this is actually perfect for you. Perhaps this is actually perfect for us because life is full of serious, intense circumstances, especially now. I heard someone describe our, our present state of affairs here in the world as the Spanish flu from the 1910s, coupled with the unemployment of the 1930s, mashed together with the protests of the 1960s, with the recession of the early 2000s uh, piled into that as well. Now, now, that might be a little bit of an overstatement of the reality of everything that's going on, but it feels that way. It, it, it feels that way. And so perhaps we need someone who loves us. Perhaps we need someone who loves us to slow down, let us take a breath, and tell us how we should respond to intense realities. Someone to counsel us. And that's exactly what Peter hopes to do for us today. Um, because Peter does love us. Peter does love us. You see, this letter that he wrote was intended to be circulated among churches that he had not been to, 
It was intended to be read to people he had never met. And so uh, what he does is he actually, at the very beginning of the letter, he, he starts out with this crazy saying, which he addresses it to people who have an equal faith as of his own. As the great disciple Peter, who is one of the closest disciples of Jesus, he says, I'm writing this to you who I have don't know, young Christians, and you have a faith that is on equal standing with my own. And then throughout the letter, he keeps on referring to them, keeps on referring to us as dear friends or as beloved friends. You could translate it that way. Well, why? Why this intense love for people he had never met? Well, that's because it's exactly what Jesus did with him. You know, Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, I no longer call you servants, but I've called you friends. And then he in turn, and Jesus in turn, served them. He also shared some truths and some intense realities for them um, because uh, there was uh, some things coming that he had to counsel them through. But that didn't call into question his love for them. It, it's, it, it can hard, be hard for us to imagine how to hold an unconditional love and then, and, and then challenge and hard truth together, both comfort and challenge together. But it's real, we, we really see this happen in the person of Christ very, very beautifully. We're going to unpack that together today. And then Jesus' disciples continued it, and it actually persists even to this day because of the example of Christ and how seriously the apostles took it. And, and, and so in this conclusion, Peter wants to slow down. He's going to give us three actions to focus on in light of intense circumstances and intense realities. And, and, what, and what'll happen is that if we actually lean into these, we can find hope, we can find joy, we can find life, we can find peace in the midst of difficult circumstances and hard situations, okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read our passage. It's going to begin in, in verse 14. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. That's the small little 14 there. And I'm going to point them out as I read through it, okay? So go ahead, pick up your Bible and, and, and uh, read along with me. Peter says, Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. So while you wait for these things, what things? Well, P Peter just got done talking about the end of the world. So as we, as we wait for Christ to come again, as we wait for everything to get wrapped up in new heavens and new earth to be born again, as we wait for that, those are these things he's talking about. Make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight. Live holy lives, Peter says, which leads to peace. That's the first thing. Now the second thing is in verse 15. He says, also, regard or consider, consider the patience of our Lord as salvation. Consider the patience of our Lord as salvation. Uh, somewhat, he's bringing these abstract notions of, of patience and salvation together, which is a little bit confusing. We'll unpack that here in a bit, but that's the second thing. And then he follows it up with this. Uh, Just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him, he speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and the unstable will twist them to their own destruction, as they do with the rest of the scriptures. So, so Peter says, you know what? You guys have heard this already, and you've heard this from the Apostle Paul. You've heard to live a holy life and to consider the patience of God as salvation. You've heard this. Paul writes about this all the time. 
And it's unclear how, uh, uh, how people are twisting these scriptures, whether they are twisting the scriptures of Paul to say something that they believe, and so they're believing kind of a misconception of the gospel, or whether they are twisting Paul's words to the point where they seem unbelievable, and so they're using that notion of twisting his words to reject Paul. Um, but we're not really sure what's going on, but both happened then, both continue to happen now, um, and, and Peter's saying, hey, you know, there's actually a, a, a right way to understand Paul. It's going to take some work, but there's a right way to understand it. We're not actually going to get into that a lot today, though. We're going to go on to this third one here, which is really where the meat is. And after we understand this third action that Peter wants us to lean into, we can really understand the other two. He says this, therefore, dear friends, see, there it is again, Beloved friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So this third one goes like this, uh, be on your guard, don't fall. And then he says how not to fall by growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Okay, um, and so we're gonna unpack these together again. The first one is um, be, uh, make every effort to be found by God without spot or blemish, live a holy life. The, the second one is consider the patience of Christ in returning as salvation. And then the third one is be on your guard, don't fall. How? By growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Three things here. Um, it's, it's almost as if Peter was a preacher, and he was, you know? And, and if we focus on them, Peter says, we will get through this life and into the next one in the most fulfilling way possible. That's his conclusion. That, that's after everything that's come through this letter. He says, focus on these three things that you might go have a fulfilling life here and then forever more. Okay, and so like I said, we're going to start in this third, this third one, which is in, uh, starts in verse 17, because there's actually a word that's present here in this third uh, action step that is very personal to Peter. You see, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was having dinner with his disciples, and they were having a long, long conversation. It's recorded in all of the gospel accounts, different pieces of it. Uh, the most is probably recorded in the gospel of John. But Jesus had hinted at several points over his ministry that he was going to leave one day. He was going to perhaps die and the disciples weren't going to see him anymore. And at this meal, he, he looks at them and he says, okay, now the time has come. It's time for me to be tortured and killed. And you know what? That's going to happen soon. And, and at the moment when I need you most, you guys, you guys are going to chicken out. You're going to deny me and you're going to flee. You're going to run away. And Simon Peter looks at Jesus and he says, never, Lord, never, Lord. I will never leave you. I will go both to prison and to death with you, Jesus. And Jesus looks at, at Simon Peter and he says, Peter, you still don't get it. This whole time in my ministry, I've been trying to tell you about how deceitful the human heart is. I've been trying to teach you about how deceitful your heart is and how you can't trust it, how you can't trust it. And look, he says, Simon, Simon, watch out. 
because Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you so that your faith will not fail. And, and after you return, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers, Jesus said. And then Peter goes on to insist, no, 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 I will not deny you, Jesus. And sure enough, by the time morning rolls around, Peter has denied Jesus three times. And we see him weeping in a corner in guilt. And and what's so interesting is that here in in the conclusion of this letter, the same word shows up back in. When, When Jesus says, when you return, Jesus, when you get back up, after you fall, when you get back up, strengthen your brothers. That same word is translated here at the end of 17 when, when Peter says, fall from your stable position. Do not fall from your own stable position. That word stable position is the same word. The same word that Jesus said used when he said, after you fall, get back up and strengthen your brothers. It's the same word as the stable position here which means this. Peter is actually saying here is that I don't want you to fall from strength. Be strong, be on guard. And what it actually means is this is a central personal thrust that Peter has that has has marked his life to help Christians stand strong, to, to help them strengthen it once they have fallen and come back or to help them stand strong and not fall away at all to begin with. This is one of the major calls on Peter's life to strengthen us. And so um, essentially what Jesus allowed Peter to do as we unpack this, this word, this strengthen your brothers, is, is Peter, uh, Jesus looks at Peter and is, is, is essentially saying, you know what, Peter, you're going to be an expert at tripping. You're going to be an expert at stumbling and falling. Take what you learn to help others get back up and stay up. You see, Peter was this arrogant, self-assured guy, and he had no idea how easy it was going to be for him to fall away morally, for him to fall away spiritually. But Jesus let him do it over and over again. And he prayed that he might not lose his faith and his trust in God so that he might learn the perseverance that he, that he needed in order to pass it on to us. And so pregnant in this phrase is that perseverance for the church, for you and for me. <clears throat> it says, be on your guard. I don't want you to fall from strength, but I want you to grow in grace. Now, now he doesn't say be on your guard and grow in grace. He says, but grow in grace, which is how we know that he's saying these two things are very linked. He's saying that the only way to be on your guard and not fall is to grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus. That's the thrust of his encouragement. Peter's saying the only way not to fall in the Christian life is to advance. The only way not to fall in the Christian life is to advance. When you teach a child how to ride a two-wheeler bike, there's, there's, there's the same fundamental principle that's at play. That when they're moving and they're going, they have a good, good chance of staying up. But the second that they stop, they're going to fall over to one side or the other. That's a bit how the Christian life is. It's a little bit like riding a bicycle. Keep your momentum up or else you will fall over. That's what Peter's telling us. He says you have to be advancing in the faith if you're going to stay up. 
You have to keep your momentum going. You have to continue in your efforts to grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. You have to focus on advancing if you want to stay upright. The moment that you forget that, you will fall. In fact, if you're not focused on growing both in grace and knowledge of Christ, perhaps you may already have fallen, Peter would say. Now, you, you might say, this all sounds great, but what does that actually look like, Ryan? What does it mean to advance in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? And that's a perfect question because this word grow in, 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 in the church has really come to be this sort of jargon, this kind of assumed vernacular in the word grow that when other people say it, we know we're supposed to agree with that concept. So we say, yep, I agree with what you're saying in that statement because you use the word grow and that's a positive word and I like it, you know? And, and it's good because it is a, it's a word that has a lot packed into it. But I think that if, if we were told, we were pushed to define what Christian growth actually is, we might struggle a little bit. We might struggle a little bit. Um, and so here, this is a great opportunity to get clear on what Christian growth means because it, because it is the key to not falling over in life. And, and to best understand growth, I think it's helpful to approach it from the side of comfort and then also the side of challenge. How the concept of growth, it, it comforts us and how it challenges, it, it challenges us. Because surely it's going to do both of those things throughout the course of our lives. And often both of these things are happening even at the same time, okay? And, and as we talk about this a little bit, I hope it gives you language to flesh out what it goes on in your soul uh, to grow you to the point where you have gotten now and you might be able to use it to continue to grow in the future, okay? So let's start with the comfort angle. How do we approach this concept? How is this concept of growth comforting? Well, it's really comforting through this phrase. Growth is gradual. Growth is gradual. That's it. And, and, and this, is, this is a really big one for us as, American, uh, as Americans because we, we hate it almost. We, we almost refuse to be comforted in this way. Now, when Peter's using the word grow, he's using a metaphor. I'm not sure if he's talking about plants or babies, but either way, both of these things share the same characteristic of growth. And do you know what that is? You can't see it happening. You can't see growth happening. Growth happens over too long of a time to actually sit there and watch it take place. You can't do it. And, and even if you were to try, it happens so slowly and so minutely and so mysteriously that you wouldn't be able to mark the change as it's happening right in front of your eyes. You wouldn't even notice it. And, and this is unsettling for us as Americans, I think, because we want breakthroughs. We want to push really hard for a little bit of time and get significant lasting results. And, and we hope growth and change works like this. And so what, what, what this looks like is we'll have seasons of trying, uh, seasons of trying where, where we wear ourselves down uh, physically and emotionally, perhaps even spiritually. We'll try really, really hard until we have perhaps this experience of an emotional breakthrough. And, and, but then shortly thereafter, we find ourselves in the same place, in the same place again. It doesn't feel like we have grown now, I think we do this because we're some of the most impatient people in all of the world. And, and what happens is it leads to this tremendous superficiality 
where we put on false, where we really put on the false pretenses that the breakthroughs that we experienced that we talked so much about actually brought the lasting change that we said it did, even though it no longer is. And though there are many Christian teachers, Christian authors, who say that your holiness will come to you in one fell swoop if you just do X, Y, or Z, this does violence to this notion of growth that Peter is talking about. That Peter says is characteristic of the Christian life. Have we forgotten the, the fable of the tortoise in the hare? It seems like a silly little story, but there's old, old, old wisdom here. We make progress in life. We make growth in life, both in grace and knowledge of Christ. In all sorts of little imperceptible advances, by going to church, by attending your cohort, by praying with somebody, by reading your Bible, by praying on your own, by listening to worship music and letting your heart be raptured and, and, and sing praise to God, uh, by serving and loving your Christian brother and sister, by serving and loving your neighbors. All of these little things, by saying no to temptation just once, are actually the little imperceptible things that cause little imperceivable advances in growth that we can't see if we were to just sit and watch. Now, you might be saying, she's trying. This is supposed to be the comforting angle. Now you're like bashing on us for being Americans. And I must apologize a little bit because uh, a little bit of that is just my disposition and how God has gifted me. Um, but, but this is the comforting part of it. Are you ready? Um, you are, and I am, a sinful, mistaken mess, and that's okay. And that's okay. Growing in grace and in knowledge is going to take a lot of time to climb out and to make advancement. Per, per, perhaps you have ad adhered to Christianity as a quick fix, but friend, that, that, that's a false notion of what growing in grace and knowledge looks like. And with that notion of Christianity actually comes a fear of judgment. Ah, I should be further along than I am. Disappointment. Ah, I thought I, I, thought I already mastered this. Why, why is it back in my life? Anxiety. If this crops back up again, does it mean I'm a Christian at all? You see, when, when we adhere to the Christianity of the breakthrough, we actually throw ourselves into an existential mess. That's the comforting part of growth, that it's gradual. Did you know that trees even grow in the wintertime after they've lost their leaves? And sometimes you may be in a cold, dark season where you, you feel far from God, and, but you're still going to church, you're still showing up at your cohort, and it's in those cold, dark seasons where you can't perceive the growth uh, by yourself that you have to ask a friend. This is what community is for. And, and, and you, you ask them, hey, have I... Have I advanced in the last six months? And your friend will likely say, well, of course you have. They, have. they have the ability to look at the snapshots where we are just in it. And so it feels like it's not growing, like we're not growing at all. So growth is gradual. Now, we can't say that without leaning into the challenge side of growth uh, because then we would have a lopsided notion of grace, of grace. If, if we stop the sermon here, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would accuse me of being a minister of a gospel of what he would call cheap grace. And he'd be right because growth always has comfort to it and challenge to it. Grace always has comfort to it 
and challenge to it. Without both, we don't have real Christian growth. We don't have real Christian grace. We don't have real Christian knowledge. We, we don't have the real Christian gospel. You see, Jesus, on the one hand, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, comfort. And then on the other hand, he looks at the woman. Well, he actually doesn't look up at the woman, but he says to the woman in adultery, go and sin no more. Challenge. So we approach growth from the comfort side with this statement, growth is gradual. Now let's approach it from the challenge side. That's really captured in this phrase, growth is possible. Growth and grace is possible. That's it. It's a very interesting notion that Peter holds out for us, that we can grow in grace, and it's up to us in order to do so. Now, you might ask, isn't grace from God? That's the very definition of grace, isn't it? A gift given freely by God to us. So how can we grow a gift? What What do we do here? Well, that's the perfect question. It's the perfect question. And the key to understanding this tension is to remember what Peter just said in chapter one, verse four. Back there, he reminds those who he's writing to. He says that those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ are now partakers in the divine nature. Partakers in the divine nature. This is an amazing, incredible statement that he still has in his mind without a doubt. It wasn't that long ago that he had said it. And that is the grace we have received as those who put our faith and our trust in Jesus, that we have received the divine nature as a gift from God. And so when Peter says the word grow, he assumes the divine nature has already been planted within us, that there's already been this germination of sorts of grace and knowledge within your soul, that there's been a a new birth and and, an inception of life and therefore any and all encouragements that he has to, to spiritually grow are actually encouragements to take this new life, this new germination, this new seedling that was planted in your heart by way of new birth and nurture it and nurture it. God's divine nature has through faith in Jesus been planted in your soul like a seed and it's sprouting. It's there and it's growing within us and it's our job to nurture it, that it might continue to grow that the divine nature might become more and more of a reality in our inner and outer lives. And this is the basis uh, for everything that Peter tells his readers to do. We had a laundry list of things uh, back at the beginning of chapter one. If you remember, he told uh, Christians to do a lot of things. Uh, it It comes after this assumption that you have the divine nature within you. All the New Testament writers, everything that they tell Christians to do, you can't find them saying someone to do something without the assumption that this person has been given the divine nature and has been uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit that gives people the desire to nurture that divine nature because God loves himself. There's a little bit of Trinity theology for you there. You can't find anywhere in the New Testament where you don't have this notion present that people are being petitioned to partner with the Holy Spirit and the love of God by taking care of and nurturing the divine nature. So the fact that growth is possible, it challenges those of us who have become complacent. It challenges all of us who perhaps have become complacent in one area of our lives. 
And so the question goes like this, have you declared peace with the habits in your life you know are contrary to God's will and are dragging you down? Have you given up on fighting the habits in your life that you know are at odds with God? Are you at peace with the hard parts of yourself that the Holy Spirit is at war with and make it hard for people to live with you? That make it hard for you to live with yourself, that make it hard for people to get along with you? Maybe you've given up because deep down you like these habits. Maybe you've given up because it's gotten too hard and you've had too many setbacks and you haven't had encouragement. Maybe you've given up because you don't feel like you've had enough support. But Peter wants to strengthen us. He wants to strengthen us. And that's the reason for this first action step back in verse 14. He says, make every effort to be found without spot, without blemish in God's sight. At peace with one another. Make every effort to pursue holiness, kind of this without spot, without blemishes, an analogy to sacrifice, to, to give our, present our bodies to God as, as holy, as without stain, without sin in them, to get serious about the sin in our lives. Jesus put it like this, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's the same thing Peter's saying, make every effort. Make every effort to fight sin in your life. Do whatever it takes, no matter what the cost, no matter how big, no matter how small. That's how growth happens. So growth is possible because of grace. God didn't just give you the grace of partaking in his divine nature to save you. That was just the original germination. God gave you that in order that you might nurture it and you might cause it to grow in this world. There's this divine mandate that's throughout scripture, which is to take all that God has given his people. It was, it was the garden for Adam and Eve and nurture it and to keep it and to tend it that it might be more fruitful, that it might grow, that, that God has packed potential into things for us to harvest and to realize and to partner with and growing. And it's the same with this divine nature that has been put inside of our hearts, that we have this incredible potential that's been planted in us and we are to tend it, to keep it, to nurture it, that it might grow. With the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. It is possible. It's going to be gradual, but it's possible. Okay? So that's the first thing, really understanding how grace is tied to holiness and then getting serious about sin in our lives and leaning into the comfort and the challenge of growth. Now, the, the, the second thing that we're going to consider today is, is that second thing that Peter highlighted for us, which is back in verse 15. One of the things that he wants people to focus on is this, consider the patience of our Lord as salvation, as salvation. Consider patience of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as salvation. You see, throughout this letter, Peter has been confronting false conclusions or interpretations about uh, what the reality of Jesus's patience in returning is. In, in chapter three, we learned that some people considered God's patience and concluded that he was not going to come back at all, that, he, that he's not going to come back. Then other people considered God's patience and concluded that God is slow to keep his promises in other words, they, they're attributing dishonorable motives to God and we're doubtful that God deserves their trust. He's taken so long to show up. Why would we trust him at all? 
And both of these conclusions are very present today, 2,000 years after. We have 2,000 extra years of waiting, and both of these conclusions are still present when people consider the patience of God and Christ's return. He'll never come back. He must not exist. Or two, his slowness to returns just means that we shouldn't trust him. After all, we're all suffering down here, aren't we? But Peter wants us to conclude the opposite. He wants us to consider God's patience as an honorable trait that flows from his love. What can that mean? Because this has never actually been more important to consider than in times of increased suffering. Because prolonged, intense human suffering produces that frustration in those waiting for salvation. They naturally cry out, how long, O Lord? Perhaps this is something that you have felt. Jesus, when are you going to come back already and fix all of this? Peter asks us to consider God's patience as salvation. As salvation for who? Well, for those who don't have it already. For those who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ. You see, as Christians, we tend to regard God's patience or God's delay as a personal inconvenience to our lives particularly uh, us American Christians, because we, we think that we're entitled to a life free of suffering. And so when we do, we get angry at God for permitting that suffering in our life. We might even stop trusting him as a result. James, the half-brother of Jesus, tells us elsewhere in the, in the New Testament, though, he says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. And, and he's talking about persecution. He's talking about sickness, death, scarcity, pain, sorrow, grief. Why? Because considering Jesus's patience as salvation, it means that his delay in returning is not because God is unloving or unfaithful, but because he is incredibly loving and incredibly faithful. It means that our desire for God to wrap it up all sooner, to wrap it up sooner rather than later, is evidence that we don't love the outsider as much as he does. That we're not devoted to the well-being of others, regardless of the personal cost to ourselves. To want Jesus to come now and fix all of your problems is incredibly unloving, Peter says because it means that his justice would hit those who are at odds with him. Why hasn't Jesus come yet? Well, because God loves people who hate him more than we do. Consider this. Every day, every minute, every second that passes, God's family grows. Have you ever thought about it like that? When would you cut off the family growth? When would you cut off the population increase to the kingdom of God? Do you really want the family without Cameron and, and Jonathan, who we baptized a month ago? How about without Urson, Jeff, or Tiffany, who we baptized last year? How about without Tim, Nate, Joshua, Tracy? How about all the other people we've baptized? Lena, Chinny, Laura. How about all the other people in the world who are starting to put their faith in Jesus for the first time? How about without me? If we back it up 14 years ago, where would you draw the line here if you were God? Consider the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, now, don't get me wrong. There is a very healthy and right desire that is in our hearts for Jesus to come back. It, it's when we, view not, it, when we don't view it in an effort to alleviate our own suffering, but, but when it's motivated by our love for him and our compassion for the 
oppress. Okay, so like we, we, we sing, come Jesus, come, when we observe the suffering in the world, not necessarily when we experience the suffering. God has given us everything we need, the scriptures tell us, the New Testament tells us, through the Holy Spirit so that we can get through suffering. We have intense comforting by the Holy Spirit. But our compassion when we behold the suffering of others fuels our desire for Jesus to come again. When we're forced to look at the mother of three who has breast cancer, come Jesus, come. When we're, when we're forced to look at the systematic and systemic racism of our nation for hundreds of years, come Jesus, come. We also sing come Jesus, come because we were made to be in full relationship with God and to experience anything other than that is existentially difficult for us to push through. We were made to relate with God face to face and an experience that will be amazing one day when we truly get to experience it again. Come Jesus, come. But Peter is inviting us into the missionary's tension here. He says, given all of these intense circumstances and and the end of the world that's coming, think like a missionary. Consider God's patience as salvation for others. So while our love for God and our compassion for the oppressed causes us to cry, come Jesus, come, our missionary mindset kicks in and it says, wait, Jesus, wait. Because if we consider his patience as salvation, our our cries go from come Jesus, come, to wait, Jesus, wait, to save, Jesus, save. And so as we wait for Christ's return, we we joyfully wait. That's what Peter's trying to get us to, a joyful waiting in the midst of intense suffering, knowing that the longer we wait, the bigger our family gets. And while we wait, we focus on growing in grace and knowledge, which leads to a life of challenging comfort. There's no way around it if you want the full grace, challenging comfort that we might be found by God holy and blameless, and we might have helped other people do so too. Will you pray with me? Father God, um, we come to you and we are humbled by your word and we are just uh, amazed at how your word is so beautiful and it captures our life so perfectly and it points us in a direction that is so life-giving and joy-bringing and hope-fulfilling, God. I ask for all those who um, are are watching this online, God, that you would show up in a real way to remind them, God, that that growth is, is gradual, growth is possible, and that your delay in coming is salvation for many. And so God, as, as, we, um, as we continue to lift up your name here uh, in, in this place, but then also in our living rooms, God, we ask that, that you would apply your gospel to our soul. We know that you are and that it is growing us in imperceivable ways, even through this service. And we praise you for it, that you are growing us through it, God. So we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and by your Holy Spirit. Amen.